Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got Driven by Difference, How Great Companies Fuel Innovation Through Diversity. And I've got David Livermore with me today. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. Hey, so um, we were chatting just before the show and, and having a couple of good uh, chuckles, as they say. Uh, I wanted to talk with you about the cover. I was I was looking at it, was reading the book, and then going back to the cover and going, oh, that's what it's about. But for you, I wanted to ask, why did you use this uh, diagram of, of the on-off switch and then all these different wires going in and, and then a, a main power source. Can you explain that metaphor? Yeah, great question, though. I, I can't take credit for having really given the design uh, much influence, but I, I think it was in conversation with the artist who did it, the idea of saying um, diversity by itself, so the colorful wires that you're referring to at the top of the cover, doesn't necessarily need lead to powerful solutions and results. But... Um, there are some levers, there are some switches that allow you to leverage that power. And so, you know, those have to be maneuvered, they have to be directed well. Otherwise, we end up with frustration and, you know, colorful websites um, with colorful images of the people who are allegedly on our teams. But that may not, not only may it not lead to good results, it may actually lead to less powerful solutions than a homogeneous team if it's not managed well. Okay, well, and, you know, it kind of begs the question, why do you think it's important for this book to come out right now? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think across North America and the world at large, this conversation of so-called diversity is getting a lot of attention, whether in the U.S. it's the Black Lives Matter movement or university students who are um, attending to things, or whether it's the growing concern about different sexual orientations or women in the workplace, whether we're talking Canada, India, or Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, there's a lot of conversation about it, particularly in our Western context, Europe and North America in particular, I think there's also a fatigue toward the conversation like, yeah, 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 okay, we get it, we get it. And especially when you're in a place like you are, Vancouver, people are like, okay, great, we've had cultural diversity for decades now, what's the big deal? And so I think this is an attempt to move the conversation forward to the next chapter, if you will, and say, okay, diversity is, it's a reality, so what are we doing with it? How are we leveraging it? How are we managing it? You know, it's interesting because you're right. There's a lot of people out there that have been switched on and, and realize that diversity is, is critical to an organization. And, and I have noticed with some of my um, larger clients, they're looking at diversity on a, a much more tactical level where they're saying, like, you know, we've got to have 15, 20, 25 percent women in our, our upper management because we don't, we can't compete anymore. So it's gone beyond diversity and it's kind of becoming part of your overall um, ability to, to, to compete and, and have some uh, strategy behind what the heck are we going to do with all this diversity? Uh, 
and I think a lot of upper management, their problem is, is like, how are we keep, how do we keep the our diverse population growing within our organization? Um, do you think that's going to be a, a problem in the future, where more and more companies start to realize, like, okay, we've got a huge amount of diversity, but how do we uh, grow that diversity in a way that it actually becomes a, a profitable decision instead of like, oh, we're doing it to be uh, understanded or to be recognized as, as a, a company that is doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely, Bob. You're asking the exact question that we were interested in getting at with the research that's behind this book. And that was to say, hey, that there are so many organizations now that have really jumped on the bandwagon of going, yes, for sure, we we want to be more diverse and seeing that it's inevitable in most of our contexts that the workforce is going to keep getting that way. But then behind closed doors, you get people from all different forms of diversity, people in management and in uh, you know, more individual contributors as well going, okay, but the most frustrating teams I'm on are the ones that are highly diverse, particularly if it reflects a global virtual team that's supposed to be working together. So, yeah, I think I think the the challenge is, uh, you know, to, to use a very specific example for a moment to the issue you're talking about. Uh, India has recently enacted some legislation that says there must be a certain percentage of women on all corporate boards for publicly traded companies. And, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of that because I think that's going to actually lead to not only equality in the workplace, but also better results for them. But then behind closed doors, what you find out is that some of the companies are ticking off the box by having the administrative assistant count as the person who's sitting there or the spouse of the vice president. Um, let's just have her show up and then we'll meet our quota. And if it's about quotas, forget it. Like it, it's almost better to not do it in the first place. So I, I think this is where, you know, this overall topic becomes like, okay, now you almost can't be legitimate, particularly, you know, on the global scene, if you aren't seen to be giving attention to this, but then you look at some of the solutions that are provided there and it's kind of like, okay, what does this have to do with anything in terms of bottom line significance? So where does this book fit in? If you're a manager in one of those companies and, and uh, they've got this book as an option to check out, what is this book bringing to that conversation? Yeah, so I, I think it's back to your question about help us make sense of the cover. It's to say, you know, diverse inputs, absolutely, those are the source of power, but it's not automatic. And so what this book seeks to do is say, okay, how do you leverage the potential of diversity in particular to lead to innovation? So, you know, when I, and granted, I'm probably not the typical person of those who tune into all the resources that you offer, Bob, but when I attend the kinds of conferences that I find myself speaking at or attending, I'll often hear other presenters say, diversity leads to innovation. You know, it's, it's the number one source of innovation. And of course, it makes sense. You have people who are looking at a problem from a diverse set of viewpoints, and you would think you're going to come up with more innovative solutions. But our research found, actually, it's not true that if it's not managed well, a homogeneous team is more likely to come up with innovative outcomes than a diverse team. But when cultural intelligence levels are raised, area of research that we can get into in this conversation if it's useful, um, that's what makes the difference. So to, to your question, what this book is about, about is to say, okay, sure, the potential is great for innovation and better solutions and 
outcomes and bottom line performance with diverse teams, but it's not automatic. So here's a process by which you can manage getting the most out of diverse teams, both so that those individuals feel included and are engaged uh, in the organization, but so also so that it actually leads to strategic outcomes that benefit the organization, the customers, the clients, etc. Now, before we get into that, because really that is the meat of the book, um, I want to talk a little bit about the research because, you know, a lot of people, they, they do use the word, oh, we did a lot of research, but you did a tremendous amount of research for this book. Indeed, and it's it's certainly not all credit to me. I'm, I'm one of a community of researchers, but our research over the last 20 years has been devoted to the space of cultural intelligence, which is simply asking, can you actually measure and predict how well people will work with others who come from culturally diverse backgrounds, whether that be somebody who never leaves uh, Vancouver and is working with a diversity of people there, uh, New York City, or whether that be somebody who's crossing you know, international timeline and, and time zones. So yeah, our research has now included about 50,000 uh, professionals around the world from 98 different countries and looking at what is it that consistently leads to their effectiveness, managing, working, leading cross-culturally. And then the latest iteration that, as you mentioned, was the research for this book was then asked how does that make the difference in the kind of innovative outputs that they have? Now, you've got this wonderful diagram that uh, comes up in, in the book again and again, um, and it's just a series of circles. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, British uh, train system. They got these. But it works really, really well. Um, you've kind of got the, the, at the beginning, you've got attention, perspective, focus, space, trust, and then it goes to define, dream, decide, design, deliver. Um, how is that working for a person that's just like looking at, at the book for the first time? What's the thing that they should be looking for or focusing on when they're going through the book the first time? Is it your define, dream, decide, uh, design, deliver, or is it the other section, which is the, the, the thin lines that drive through it? Where should people be focusing first? Yeah, uh in one way, the, the thin lines that you talked about, the just paying attention to diversity and innovation, um, d disciplining oneself to be focused, even in the midst of the pings of emails and requests from around the globe or a culturally diverse team, those are foundational environmental factors. Having said that, probably the part that's more immediately intuitive to the kinds of people who tap into the resources that you offer, Bob, is going to be the circles of the process. Because essentially, what's what you just described there, this is not overly unique to what our research found from what you're going to find from design thinking or what you're going to find in any good book on driving an innovative process. That is, first of all, you have to define what it is you're trying to do. Then you have to ideate, come up with creative ideas, you know, empathize with the customer, the user, and then eventually you're going to design it and implement it. And that's what that's getting at. So I think more intuitively, people are going to immediately connect with the circle diagram. Like, yeah, 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 that, that's a process I'm familiar with. What we're seeking to do is say, hey, th this isn't rocket science. Not like we're saying we've come up with a whole new process for innovation no one's thought about before. But instead, we're saying, okay, but what are the variables that change and shift on this when you're dealing with a highly diverse team? What are the things you can't just assume. So to be specific about it, in, in the dream 
cycle of the, the process. You know, the second part of those circles you're talking about. First of all, you define what you're trying to do and then dream up ideas. This is the kind of thing you're going to see in any innovation process. Generate ideas, get lots of people's input. So for those of us who come from the dominant cultures in the U.S. and Canada, probably one of the most typical ways that we would ideate or dream is brainstorming. Let's get the whiteboard and the marker. Let's all just brainstorm. No idea is a dumb idea. Well, this is rooted in a very individualistic notion. Many of us were brought up in schools where 20% of your grade is classroom participation. No such thing as a dumb question. I mean, brainstorming is made for uh, now I'm going to make assumptions about you, Bob. We haven't gotten to meet in person yet, but what you look like anyway, and I have Canadian roots myself, brainstorming is made for people like you and me. Let's just jump in. Let's brainstorm. Yeah, I love it. Let's put the ideas up on, on the whiteboard. Whereas if you come from a more collectivist culture, 70% of the world, you've been socialized to say, never speak up unless a senior person in the room has spoken first or invite you to speak up. And even then, you better have something really of value to say. You're not just going to blab idiocy into a conversation. So I'll, I, I'm going too far down this tangent, but this, this is just an example of saying, okay, we all get it. Part of innovating is get everybody to contribute their ideas. But the very way I go about that is framed by some cultural assumptions. So what we're trying to get at in the book is when we walk through that process you're describing is say, how do you take a really basic task that most of us as managers and leaders use all the time, brainstorming, and how do I think differently about how am I going to brainstorm if I have people who come from very different cultural backgrounds? And all the more so if we're trying to do it on a conference call and people are multitasking and calling in at different times of the day from different time zones around the world. So that was it. You're quickly learning. I kind of go way around circuitously before I come back to your question. All that is to say that diagram that you're describing, uh, the, the elements on the front end, paying attention to diversity, perspective taking, taking on the, these are very foundational, almost psychological uh, components that each of us individually need to work through. But then when we're managing a team, the five circles, define, dream, design, et cetera, deliver them. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, that I think will be, will immediately resonate with individuals because it's, it's a familiar process for how you walk teams through the innovative, um, innovative strategies. Well, you know, what's interesting about that, too, is it not only covers what's going on as, as far as like cultural differences, but just the way people's heads are wired. Like you, you've got the extroverts, you've got the introverts, you've got combinations, you've got the accounting department, you've got the uh, marketing department, you've got the sales department, all kind of become uh, magnets for specific personality types. And, um, you know, you, you usually don't go into a, uh, an accounting department and run into a bunch of people that are super creative, um, doing all sorts of crazy new things every day in the books is no, it's, it's about doing things consistently and double checking because accounting is, is a very mathematical driven approach to business. The only time you really get super creative is if you go into basically advance business techniques where you're starting to chart out long-term strategies and then it goes more on uh, more of a creative approach to stuff but still it has to be anchored with a realistic approach to cash flow and profit and loss so do you think the the learnings in this book also would be very beneficial to somebody that has a very diverse team um, not because he has a bunch of women on the team or not because he has a, a cultural differences in the team, but he actually has uh, 
people that have very strong opinions or people that uh, are very introverted and do have strong opinions but never bring it up in the meeting. Absolutely. Uh, and we definitely get into in the book some of the ways that this applies to diversity as it relates to different personalities as well as functional diversity if you have a group of accountants, engineers, and marketers all on the same team. So yeah, undoubtedly. It, it raises a good question. I should define for your listeners how we go about even defining the term diversity because I think to your very point, people often will say, well, what do you even mean by that? Like, you know, I, you and I look different. Is, is that diversity? You know, I'm an introvert, you're an extrovert. Is that diversity? And so I, I think I actually welcome the thought that diversity has been broadened to include so many different dimensions of diversity, just as you uh, reference. I think the only caution with that is if we aren't careful um, in an attempt to broaden the definition of diversity, it can end up meaning nothing, meaning you and I have different birthdays. Oh, we're diverse. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. So the way that we've been more specific on that um, in the way that we kind of addressed the research for this book is there's two forms of diversity that we find have the most impact on the innovative process. And the first one is visible diversity. So that would be the form of diversity that, that you were just asking about, Bob, does it go beyond? Does it go beyond skin color? Does it go beyond gender? And to a certain degree, you could say age and um, possibly religion if one dresses in a way that denotes their religion. But visible diversity is found to just um, implicitly in the brain, I'm automatically wired to favor people who look like me, whatever that means. So we do address specifically visible diversity. But the second form of diversity that we also controlled for that broadens to some of these things that you've talked about are any time that someone's an underrepresented culture within a group or un represented demographics. So that is to say, anytime that you're less than 15% of a group. So if I'm on a task force and I'm the only accountant and everybody else is from HR or everybody else is from marketing, I am going to have a different perspective there that is going to be more noticed because now things that I say that might not even be a result of me being an accountant, people are going to be more quick to go, oh, that's because he's the accountant in the room or that's because she's the marketer in the room. So, uh, at any rate, all that to say, these other forms of diversity that you referenced are definitely ways that this gets applied as well. And really, a whole lot of what I just said about brainstorming, individualism versus collectivist that usually is, is informed by one's culture, to your point, that argument could be made just as strongly in terms of introverts versus extroverts. Extroverts think on their feet, process externally, verbally, so brainstorming works well for them. For some introverts, now I'm generalizing, but for some introverts, brainstorming is a nightmare. Like, oh, here's where I'm just supposed to blab about nothing and I haven't actually like taken time to think about it. So uh, I would suggest, though I don't want to overextend the promise, that if if one takes seriously the principles that are, are in what's come from these research findings, not only will it make them more effective with so-called cultural cultural diversity, ethnic, gender, national diversity, but also it'll help them with the other kinds of diversity that you mentioned. You know, I, I think it's also, you know, as somebody that's running a meeting, because that's usually what happens in organizations, say, geez, we got to figure this out. And then they say, well, great, you organize the meeting. They just throw it on your lap. So you say, okay. And uh, you end up in these meetings with uh, some people you don't know, and it takes a little bit of time to figure them out. But if you do really have no strategy and you have no uh, conscious thinking about 
oh, you know, I'm going to have a variety of people in this room. It's it's going to be culturally diverse. It's going to be mentally diverse. It's going to be personality diverse. Let's be aware of that instead of just going into the meeting saying, okay, let's get through the meeting. So you're talking really about a, changing the way people that are putting meetings together should be entering that meeting. Maybe meditating a little bit about, okay, we've got some goals, but how are we going to get to those goals so I can include as many people as possible? And I've, with a lot of books that, that uh, we've talked on the show, you know, this comes up again. is like sometimes the meeting has to happen after the meeting where you have your meeting and then you have two or three people that you've you, you've targeted and you go and visit those people after the meeting and sit down and say, so now you've had a chance to think about it, what do you think about these points? Because I need your input as well. Do you think that's uh, a, a realistic strategy once you've kind of like a read a book like this and, and realized the importance of uh, having everybody pitch in and, and kind of like making extra time for specific individuals or making extra uh, conscious control decisions during the meeting. Yeah, spot on, Bob. Uh, and I, I can come at this a couple ways. If we even think about the individual leader and what it looks like for them to be culturally intelligent, without me getting into all the technical aspect of it, but our, our assessments finds there's four capabilities or skill sets that consistently emerge among them. They, they have high, what we call CQ drive. They're, they, they know how to manage it, their own motivations for it. They have high CQ knowledge. They have a strong understanding of different cultural backgrounds. The third one is the very piece you're talking about. They have high CQ strategy and the last one, high CQ action. So the strategy piece, that third one, in some ways, this is a whole book about how do you do that. And it, I think, I don't know about your experience. But I think in some ways this runs against the grain of what we often think about in terms of the successful CEO. That is, ah, they lead from the gut. They just, intuition is the way. And and there's a lot of research that does demonstrate that's true, that some of the best decisions made by CEOs are not based upon data analysis and a full-on strategic plan, but they just sense to knew it. Where we find that that is most dangerous is when they're leading with their gut in a situation that's unfamiliar familiar to them. And so at times this sounds so overly simplistic, but what we're often saying is the very thing that you just noted, Bob, is that, hey, if you're going into a meeting and it's going to have people from a variety of different cultural backgrounds, you can't just assume I'm going to read the pulse in the room because the very way that I even intuit the cues might be rooted in what my gut has told me people who look like me or guys wired by like me, how they're going to offer their feedback. And that, that might not be accurate at all. So a, a concrete example of that, we were doing a program with a Fortune 50 company that all of us would know very well. And they were in particular trying to look at how to develop an innovative leadership development program for one of their newest leadership competencies that they had developed, which was act like an owner. So the whole idea was, even though it's a massive multi-billion dollar company, they wanted anyone in the top you know, 5,000 level of leaders to really act like they're owners of the company. So you know, for me as an entrepreneur, it immediately resonated. I get what they're after. They want them to own these decisions as if it's their own company, spend the money as if it's theirs, approach risk in the same way. So, you know, I'm just sitting there as a participant in this meeting of how are we going to develop a leadership development program to teach our junior leaders how to act like owners. So the 
the individual facilitating the meeting does as we would expect. We all come together. Okay, today we're going to talk about innovative program to get our leaders to act like an owner. Okay, great. We get to the first break, a couple of the individuals who are a part of the meeting from the, the Bangkok office in Thailand say to me over coffee, maybe you can help our facilitator understand that this whole idea of act like an owner in our context is a really difficult idea to communicate to our leaders because whether their perception is fair or not, they say to me in Thailand, an owner is someone that plays golf all day, gets drunk out on the golf course and randomly calls in orders to the office. And now I'm trying to explain to all of my people across our company why we want them to act that way. And they understood that's not what their company was really after, but something as simple as that first step in the innovation process, define, was like, hey, this facilitator did a great job. Define today. Here's what we're after. We want to develop a leadership program that helps people act like an owner. But if a little bit of more, this whole strategy anticipating ahead of time that you talked about had been done, we could have stopped to think about, okay, but what does that even mean? How do we all define it? And to the individual's credit that was facilitating, he received that feedback well and then kind of did a mid-course correction and talked about what do we actually mean by that. So uh, indeed, I, I think to the point that you raised, part of what we're getting after here is just as simple as step back and sit down and think about the task that I just do almost by default because it's so natural to me. What about that might need to be adjusted based upon the context where I'm finding myself today or the cultural backgrounds or personality backgrounds or functional backgrounds of the people with whom I'm speaking. You know, and, and it's almost like um, managers and, and, and owners and, and basically people in C-suite that are, that are driving, um, they've got to have a slightly different attitude than they've had in the past where, you know, captains of industry, you just say, this is the way we're going and we're going to do it this way and do it this way or you're not going to be on the team for very long. Compared to today, it's like, okay, if we do it this way, what's going to happen with the organization, guys? And then the whole C-suite discusses it and they say, okay, based on us understanding actually what we're going to do, how can we uh, permeate this within an organization, like the internal communication in the organization, and actually step it down for every different division and every different layer all the way down to the guy that drives the truck delivering it to people because you can say oh we're going to be more diverse or we're going to be going after this market up at the c-suite level that means nothing to the guy that's driving the truck so you almost have to have a series of translators or, or communication experts that kind of step it down so that core message has to be delivered to a driver so it, it you might say you have to drive your truck this way because that's what the definition of what somebody said 27 layers up, which sounds crazy, but that's how uh, translation works. Because rarely is the person at that 27 layers up going to be having one-on-one -on -one conversations with those individuals, at least unless it's intentionally planned for. You know, Jeff Bezos uh, is known for in his key strategic meetings at Amazon saying there needs to be an empty chair present at all of our important meetings because it represents the customer. And we, we need to make sure that the customer's viewpoint is being informed by this. And one of the things that we kind of gently suggest to them and other organizations that have adopted that policy, which I think is a great visible reminder is who do you assume is sitting in the chair? If I assume that that customer's behavior is added 
attitudes, desires are all the same as mine, and I don't have a diverse team around that table. And as you noted, diverse not only in terms of ethnicity or gender, but diverse even in terms of buying power and the kinds of places that I would shop or not shop, then I, I may be developing an innovation that's ill-suited to what the person in the empty chair is actually thinking and desiring. Well, you know, that's interesting. I think having an empty chair is the problem right there. I think they should have somebody from customer service in that chair mm, representing mm. the community <laughs> of consumers. Because That's then, a great point. You know, if, if, if it's all about community now. And if your community is, is communicating to your customer service department and, you know, it, it's a lot of times, 90% of the times it's, it's complaints. But if you look at the way Amazon's structured, there's tremendous opportunity for people to reach out and say, I like this product. I give it three stars. So if you had a division and their job was to basically just go through all those comments and uh, have meetings and discussions with customer service to get where the problems are as far as uh, the customer is concerned, uh, then those people should have representatives in that, that chair because then they could stand up in a meeting and say, hey, you know, guys, no, that's not what we want. We, and when they say we, the people that are buying the products that actually make you have a salary, this is the core problem. So what you're suggesting isn't going to fix that problem, and it's still going to be around. And, and all the more so if you're really then seeking to launch out into a new product stream and or new market than you've been in before. I was, I was just rereading Adam Grant's book, Originals, and he, he talks about this related to the segue. And Steve Jobs was so convinced this was going to be the next big thing and wanted to throw massive amounts of money into supporting it. And the segue was an abysmal failure. And, part, and if you're just looking at it in terms of really going mainstream and people adopting it. And part of how Adam Grant interprets that based on his research is that Jobs was wonderful at getting an eye for something that we wouldn't even know to ask for that we know to be the iPhone today, but it was in a totally different field and arena. And he was now you know, perhaps in part from hubris as well as other things. That, oh, I know a good opportunity when I see it. Let's just go for it. And again, that, that's where I think to your point, broadening the term of diversity to not only mean let's make sure we have the United Nations seated around the table, but let's make sure customer service who is talking day in and day out with our actual users are speaking into the kinds of innovations that we're trying to develop here. Now, I want to ask you, um, what's the best way to approach this book? Is it a book that you can jump around in, or is it kind of a book that you should kind of read from the beginning to the end to get the best out of it? Yeah, I, it, fair question, and lest it sound like, oh, of course, everyone must read my books from start <laughs> to finish. I do have some I've written where I'd say, oh, it's it's more of a guidebook. Pick and choose where you go. This one, there is a bit more of a a, a process that's intended from start to finish. So I, I would say ideal would be start to finish. And there's a lot of, if nothing else, for, for the really busy person who's like, okay, this is somewhat interesting to me, but I have 10 other books I'm trying to get through in the next six weeks. If nothing else, the end of each chapter has some key summary points. So at least looking through those before starting to do the jumping around, I think is going to be more useful for people to kind of get the sense of what we're after here. Mm. Well, that makes a lot of sense because you can go to those points and if you can breeze through, oh yeah, I get that. I, I, I kind of have my own theories around it, so fine. Uh, exactly. But then you run into sections and, and they say, what? Then go back and read that chapter or, or at least part of that chapter until you have your aha moment. Yep, precisely. Speaking of which, my favorite question for you, 
you know, you've done all this research, you're, you're in the industry, you're chatting with people all the time, but something happens when you put it all down and make a book, you focus and, and things crystallize. So for you, what was your aha moment when you created the book? You know, um, this book took me longer to write than, I, I have a few books that are out, but than any of the books prior to it. Um, and not, not the literal sitting down and writing it up, but figuring out how exactly to frame it. You know, So you just referenced the two big sections of the book, the front end being much more these kind of psychological notions of how do I focus my attention and you know, what's the impact of priming people to think about certain things, and then the second half being much more a concrete process. And initially, my conceptualization of it was more just the front half, because that's the material that fascinates me. Let's get into the psychology of how we view one another and how does that impact our, our thinking. But I realized the more that I was having conversation with managers and people out in the workplace and frankly trying to solve my own problems of, okay, but what am I supposed to actually do with this information? And then suddenly, um, the, the, as I was better understanding um, the connection to the innovation work, that's when it kind of crystallized. That in one regard, the first half could be applied to so many different ways of how you manage a diverse team, but then linking it more specifically to innovation was to say, ah, this is how it all kind of offers a unique offering in this somewhat crowded space of diversity to specifically say, what's the linkage between our work in cultural intelligence, diversity, and then actually coming up with more innovative solutions. Let's talk a little bit about a slightly different thing because it seems to be a hot topic these days, millennials, because they've got a lot of power right now and they are uh, evolving companies even if they don't want to be evolved. Um, how do they fit into this strategy? Yeah, certainly age is one of the crucial things that we controlled for in terms of looking at diversity. So I would say they fit in a couple ways. First of all, I would say with millennials, the same as I would say about Canadians versus Germans or men versus women, uh, is that we need to be really careful to not take too far the stereotypes of this is the way millennials are. First off, none of us like to be told that, you know, the minute somebody says, oh, because you're a white guy, you think this way. Oh, really? You know, um, though there may be some kernels of truth that are in it. So, you know, that that would be the same. And we we present that caution, whatever the form of diversity that's being talked about in the book. So I, I talking to growing numbers of millennials who are really fatigued by their manager just went to a seminar on millennials and comes back and says, now I've figured you all out. Um, but the other way of it is, I would say too, um, while many of us may have some default assumptions about, oh, they're entitled or they're not working hard enough or whatever, to say, no, I mean, sure, there are people who are slothful and lazy and not working hard who are millennials and boomers alike, but the fact that they're millennial doesn't make them that way. They have a different way of going about work, and the organizations that are learning that well um, are again, using it as a key driver in innovation. So we, I reference in the book some of the work that we've done at Facebook. And one of the most fascinating individuals that I've uh, encountered in our work with Facebook is a guy named Bill McLaughlin, who's 50-something-year-old executive coach, has been Zuckerberg's coach. And he talks about how when he first came into the company, I was like, I am going to kick their butts and show them what hard work is all about. And the longer that he worked with a group where he was by far away, of one of the oldest people in the company, the more he went, 
No, they're just going about work differently. And I need to almost view them, if you will, as a foreign culture that I'm seeking to understand. There are different things that motivate them. Um, and then approach it in a way of how do I effectively both learn from them and come alongside of them and suggest some ways that they may benefit from other age groups. So I think, I mean, uh, across North America, Asia as well, age diversity is one of, is, is at least among the top two um, forms of diversity that CEOs are most concerned about managing well in the workplace. Um, so I think this topic is not going to go away quickly. And uh, while there are other books that better address that specifically straight on, it absolutely is a piece that we continually address in this book in terms of talking about how do you engage them well uh, as a way for them both to find meaning and significance in their work, but also as a manager to say, how do we use their diverse input in a way that leads to good outcomes and solutions? Now, you've got here in, in the book the, the power of, of 90 minutes focus. Why, why 90 minutes? Because, you know, there's been several books written about how much time you should focus on a specific thing. Why 90 minutes? Yeah, the, I don't want to overstate it, but there's been some research that says particularly for um, something that really requires a higher level of creative thinking, that 90 minutes is about how long we can last before we need some kind of mental break. And, you know, I think that's something for managers to consider, too, when they do an offsite or, you know, for people like our company, when we go in and deliver training, like we get so impressed with all the great information that we can't possibly give people more than a three minute break because they absolutely need to be there three hours straight. Well, the research bears out that unless you, every 90 minutes there's some kind of true mental reprieve that's not all spent online checking emails, it's, it's just kind of like when you're doing a physical workout that, that the brain needs that kind of break. So again, in one way, you could say that about any team. It doesn't have to be a diverse team or any individual, but all the more so when you're working on a project that has diverse inputs coming into it. That's, that's one of the things that we talk about. Let's just be honest about this diversity conversation instead of just the rah, 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 kumbaya, it's better when you put diverse people together. And, and yeah, I'm not the jerk that says there isn't something to be learned by that, but hey, let's just be honest with you. It's hard work. Like it's easier to just work with people who see the world the same way I do. So again, to make the same point, all the more reason then why once you go beyond 90 minutes, it, it becomes pretty difficult to not give people some kind of reprieve from that. You know, you said a very interesting thing there. It's like it's much easier to work with people that are like yourself. Um, do you think companies tend to, people tend to grow into companies and, and work with divisions and excel in divisions that are like themselves and the company itself evolves um, in a wrong way, in a way that, that as people grow and become more important and, and make more and more decisions and are running larger amounts of the company, they're actually doing it with a team that they've crafted, which are all like themselves. How does somebody grow in an organization and be the king of diverseness? Yeah, no, that that's a very great point because we all read so much about a strong corporate culture and the influence that has. Um, yeah, I think it is, first of all, 
it's more concretely defining diversity. And one of the ways that we get at that is we actually have a behavioral assessment that measures people's cultural values, just neither good nor bad. Just are you more oriented to liking emergent opportunities that are undefined or do you prefer things that are very certain and not very ambiguous? And part of it is for a team to just look at, let's go beyond just mapping skin color or age. Let's map diversity in that way and intentionally hire people who value things differently than we do. Because, you know, again, while I already said visible diversity is a key part of this process, you might have two individuals who are, you know, one guy, one woman, one African-American, one Caucasian, and, you know, both Harvard MBAs who at the end of the day pretty much view the, the world very much the same way, even though they look diverse. So I think it, it comes back to this issue of strategy that you keep raising and we keep harping on throughout the book. There has to be an intentional strategy that says a strong corporate culture can either be an asset or it can be a keen liability that if it's, if it's too strong and can't adapt, that can actually undermine your effectiveness. Quick, quick point that takes that just slightly different direction as it relates to, to more the, the customer involvement, not only the internal staff. So uh, we've actually been doing quite a bit of work recently with Starbucks in Canada. So maybe offline, you and I should talk about whether you're a Tim Hortons fan or a Starbucks <laughs> fan. But uh, when Starbucks first expanded into China, they very intentionally worked hard to adapt to the Chinese market. That being said, they didn't offer many of their coffee drinks. They tried to decorate it to look like a Chinese tea house. They had a whole lot more tea offerings than what you'd find in Seattle or Vancouver. And the feedback from the Chinese customer was very dismissive. You know, we wanted to order the vente mocha that we got when we were in Toronto last year. You know, don't, don't give me the teas that I can get far better versions of in any tea house closer to here. So sometimes the best thing you can do as an organization is to not adapt too far because your distinctive offering is to not actually adapt. And there's some, I've not studied it enough myself, but there's some who would say that was part of Target's demise in Canada, that they worked too hard to adapt to what they thought the Canadian customer wanted, when in point of fact, um, Canadian customers were saying, we wanted what we got and we drove across the border to the US and shopped at Target and instead you gave us some very different version. So this is a, it's a delicate process and it's why I'm not a fan that says, oh, the, the answer is whether it's with my colleague or whether it's with a customer that I ought to just fully adapt to that individual's cultural or personal preference because it might actually be that my distinctive offering as a millennial or as a male or as an engineer is the very thing that makes me different. But how do I dove that, dovetail that together with some type of inclusive culture that says together we as Starbucks or we as Target or we as this manufacturing company are offering a, a distinctive product? Yeah, it's tricky. You know, it's like... Uh the more the better you get at something the harder it is to make it real and uh you got to have somebody in the organization or a book like this that you can go to and double check every now and again and saying hey am i doing too much of this because you can always like you say over over assume and say oh this is our direction so we're going to do it come hell or high water you've really got to like try hard and then stop step back review maybe discuss with some people that aren't in the same room and then try again 
and and it's like uh, it's almost like A/B testing when you're doing marketing. It's like we're going to try this headline and this picture and see what the results are. And you might be getting great results, but that doesn't mean that those are the best results. So let's try a tiny tweak. Maybe we have a little red star and try the same. Oh, we got lousy results from the red star. Well, now we've learned something. And it's kind of it's all about this ability that even though you may be perceived as being successful, you're actually failing because you're not trying enough different approaches. And that can be because the culture's not letting you do it or that you're just being lazy and say, hey, look, at it works. What the heck? Let's just keep doing it. Absolutely. And it's, you know, to some of the points you were making earlier about those in the C-level suites, I mean, who's going to tell the senior VP that her idea is stupid? Most of us, even if we're a very anti-hierarchical culture, are not going to do that. So those individuals have to strategically find ways to get diverse inputs that are not just telling them what they want to hear, but truly telling them what they need to hear. Mm. That sounds actually like an amazing book. How to tell your boss that their idea is dumb (laughs) and not get fired. There you go. There's your new book title. (laughs) Hey, so uh, for people that are, uh, you know, into this, they like what they're hearing and stuff like that. Do you have like a website or a blog where they can continue to learn or, or research this idea some more? Yeah, absolutely. So my personal website that just gives more information on on the book, and that is davidlivermore.com, just like it sounds. Um, And then uh, the Cultural Intelligence Center, of which I'm a part and where we offer variety of assessments and training and consulting related to this, is culturalq.com. So that's C-U-L-T-U-R-A-L, the word cultural and the letter Q.com. Cool. Now, what's one thing that somebody can do in their organization or themselves personally to get started on this path other than read the book? Oh, what else is there, Bob? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, You know, this sounds so simplistic, but part of it is seek out somebody who has a very different perspective than you, preferably in the organization, on something, and sit down and have lunch together and Talk about why it is you view something so differently. I mean, for us south of your border right now, that might be politics, purposely finding someone who's for a different presidential candidate than you and not trying to convince one another that they're stupid or they're wrong. Just like, how did you land at a place that thought that individual was the best person or more specifically internally, somebody who thinks that we should open up an operation in China and somebody else who thinks they shouldn't. So just just test it out individually instead of just finding those who are going to agree with you. If seek out someone that you know will disagree. And of course, that has to be couched by both of you of let's come at this seeking to understand and see what you learn from the conversation and uh, then look at ways that you might be able to cascade that into a team-related conversation that learns from it. Yeah, that's a really smart idea because, you know, ultimately you could find some amazing new friends, uh, some amazing new associates, but also be building up a very diverse power structure within an organization that over many years as you grow in the organization, you're able to do things that nobody else can because your team or the people that uh, you consider your, your friends and associates is so diverse um, that you're bringing stuff to the table that nobody else can. Yeah, exactly. And and likewise, so are they. And it, it you know, I, I often say that with enough information, any point of view, 
at least makes a little bit more sense. Doesn't mean I'll agree with it. Even take a fundamentalist extremist who takes a point of view that would be different from what most any of us would hold to. If I at least have some understanding of how it was they arrived at that, doesn't mean I'm going to condone it or say, oh, that's okay. I respect, I may never respect it, but I may at least arrive at a place of going, okay, this at least now helps me understand how you arrived at that point of view. Hey, we've been chatting with David Livermore, his book, Driven by Difference, How Great Companies Fuel Innovation Through Diversity. And you've got to read this book because I think in, in a whole, if, if you read the book, understand, understand the strategies, understand the growths that you will get from the book, you can apply that to every part of your life, not just your business life. So David, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bob. It was a privilege. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash business book talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.